This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Trinity Chase Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Today we're also joined by our other co-host, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Wes, thanks for coming back to the studio. As always, great to be here. I uh, should just note, I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services. Our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies or tied to the average investment products. Views our guests are their own and not those of Peter's affiliates. Professor Siegel, we're going to have some commentary from you to start off the show. I know you're traveling, uh, so just to get some quick comments. Yeah. Um, we've got you know more volatility in the White House, more turnover there, but we've got a new economic advisor. Uh, any sort of thoughts on what's uh, what's been happening this week? Yeah, and um, well, a number of things. First, I do want to announce as. Uh, the members of the Penn community have, have gotten a notice that uh, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Janet Yellen uh, uh, in um, Zellerbach Auditorium um, on Annenberg uh, uh, Monday afternoon. Uh, I think members of the Penn community are invited, but we are also going to have a special recording of that uh, interview uh, uh, on Sirius XM 111 at 1 p.m. on Wednesday. So. Uh, please uh, stay tuned. It will also be available in podcast form. It is her first interview outside of Washington since she has stepped down as uh, chairman of uh, the Federal Reserve. So uh, that's going to be very, very exciting. Uh, and secondly, as you mentioned, yes, Larry Kudlow uh, replacing Gary Cohn. I think that's an absolutely excellent choice. I know Larry from way back. Um, uh, he knows a lot of economics. In fact, in my opinion, knows much more economics than Gary Cohn does. Um, uh, of course, Gary Cohn knows a lot about the markets, but uh, but Larry Kudlow is also very familiar with the markets. I'm very pleased with that choice. Uh, he is a free trader, but he's willing to, he's willing to spend enough to fit into the Trump administration. Well, um, I mean, uh, he's been an advisor for Trump uh, even before Trump was elected. So there's no question that uh, that Donald Trump, the president, knows his views and yet still values him enough to bring him on uh, as uh, economic advisor. And I think that's, uh, again, uh, an excellent choice. So that is that's very good news. Um, as far as the news that we got this week, a uh, little mixed. Uh, today we got housing starts. They were definitely on the weak side, but we have a blowout consumer sentiment. Industrial production was strong. When you put it all into the GNP, you know, the uh, the service that I look at most closely, uh, macro advisors, because I think they're the most accurate, um, it's still predicting only a 
percent GDP growth for this first quarter. Although uh, with revisions, they do think that the fourth quarter might have crept up to three percent, and we will hear about that at the end of the month. Obviously, the Trump administration will crow about that. That will be three consecutive three percent, even though it looks like this quarter won't measure up. No, no disaster by any means, but um, uh, weakness in consumption. Those retail sales data that we got earlier were definitely on the disappointing side. Vehicle, uh, the car sales were also on the disappointing side. So consumption has taken a turn uh, a bit lower um, in this uh, first quarter. Markets are on hold with the bond rate. Uh, you know, it looked like it was threatening 290 and above, and uh, now it's down into the low uh, 280. So they're looking at a little bit milder inflation news, a little bit softer economy, um, and, uh, you know, ba- the shorts are backing off a little bit on the long bond. You know, the I got my Bloomberg up and up here, and the second headline on their on their top stories is is backed by Cudlow GOP dares Democrat with phase two of tax cuts. Um, they're talking about making the individual tax cuts maybe permanent. Yeah, uh, no, that, that's that's going to be very interesting. That um, individual tax cuts permanent. The Democrats are going to have to come up with a with a new plan, and they're going to say we're going to cut for the middle class more and put some of the other taxes back. So they have to scramble because the, otherwise uh, the, 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 you know, the Republicans will, will have this issue on their sides, um, you know, come the November election. So, yeah, I mean, um, th- this, this is going to be something that uh, is certainly going to be a, 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 a point of issue, I think, going into the November elections. Let me also say that after passing the revision of, of um, the Dodd-Frank uh, to eliminate the Volcker rule, uh, we got very, I mean, that's about it. I, I don't think we're going to get anything else um, uh, in um, Congress this year. So you're, you're skeptical on this phase two of the taxes? or yeah, I, I, Phase two will, no, that's going to be the battle for November. In other okay. words, the Republicans will have theirs. The Democrats will slant it more towards the low, middle, lower middle class, and that's going to be a contention point in November elections. There will be, in my opinion, nothing passed uh, by November. Very good. Uh, Professor, thanks for joining us for some commentary today. Certainly. Bye. We're going to turn into our, our discussion with our guests. We've got um, a Bloomberg uh, Bloomberg friend, Eric Balchunas, in the studio with us. Eric, um, Philadelphia guy here. Thanks for coming to our studio. Hey, thanks for having me. Good. It's like a home game for me. I just took an Uber here, and here we are. I'm Very, so used to like you know going up to New York, and yeah, you know the deal. It's it can be rough, especially with the the weather. So I've known you for a long. I mean, I probably known you almost a decade now, probably. And you, you know, you've been covering. So maybe talk to people a, a little bit about how you got started at Bloomberg, going from where you were on the data side to now having your own TV show on Bloomberg every Wednesday, the ETFIQ show, which uh, we're obviously big fans of, Wes and I here. But tell a little bit how you got started at Bloomberg. And great guests. Both of you guys were really good when you were on. Um, uh, so I joined Bloomberg in, two, in year 2000, so I've been there a long time. I'm basically a lifer at this point. Um, had a few jobs before that, um, started my career at Institutional Investor as a funds reporter, uh, which was what I went to school for, um, uh, journalism and communications. Anyway, had a few jobs, and then I, I got to I saw a job for public relations at Bloomberg in year 2000, interviewed for it, had a lot of interviews, realized it was a job close to the big man at the time. So I was on a PR team that was um, just like a couple people. At that time, the company was smaller, so the corporate communications team was pretty small. And uh, my job was to sort of like 
basically write press releases about what the terminal was doing and try to get you know press uh, inside the business world for the terminal. And uh, I did that for a while, and then I uh, made a life change. I moved down to uh, South Jersey out of New York after a near miss in 9-11. And when I did that, the commute was pretty rough, and I transferred from the New York office to the Princeton office of Bloomberg, so my commute would be lower. The only thing they do in Princeton is R&D and data at the time, and I don't know uh, C++. (laughs) So I went into the data group, and they put me in the funds data group because I had covered mutual funds that one job earlier. So I spent the next, geez, it's, it's crazy, 16 years doing data at Bloomberg, which I still to this day am the only person in the history of Bloomberg to go from PR in New York to data in Princeton. It's a, it was an odd move. One's a talking job and a writing job. The other one's more of a production job. But it was good for me, and it really, I was learning how the Bloomberg terminal was made. That's sort of the warehouse. That's where, if uh, Bloomberg was a car company, that is the warehouse where they put all the tires on the cars, and it's the factory. And that is how you get the great terminal that everybody uses. It's full of data. And our job was to make sure that all the funds data was accurate. Uh, We would try to find better ways to get the data in the system, whether it's from prospectuses or uh, spreadsheets or the exchange. That way, when you pull up your terminal like you just did, and you type in a, a fund and you type DES, it's all right there. It's like ready-made sushi. We've taken all the raw ingredients, made it real nice. That was my job for a long time. And then uh, while I was doing that, I got ETFs uh, as an assignment in 2006 when somebody left on maternity leave and didn't mm. come back. That's right when we got started. That's when I got to know you back, like right when this started. And I remember sending all the data to Eric going back and forth. And you were always just a very, you became like the, talk about the advocacy at Bloomberg for ETFs because, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of startup part of the asset management business, and not everybody saw, saw the vision. But you were early on at Bloomberg as being like the ETF guy and seeing the vision. Yeah, I, I felt I had missed an opportunity earlier in my career. Um, and so when I got ETFs, I just I kicked the tires on this a little bit. I, you know, when, when that person left and I was like looking at ETFs and talking about them more, maybe I was on the phone with people like you, went to a conference or two heard a few evangelists, you know, talk about them. And then I I said to myself, you know, I've been covering mutual funds, hedge funds, close-end funds. I've been around the sort of structure of funds for a while. This thing is like five or six evolutionary steps forward, not just one. And I thought that's when I I thought this is going to be a game changer. And I I just thought, I'm going to seize this opportunity and just become the ETF guy at Bloomberg. And so I I just started downloading books, going to every conference, uh, newsletters, newsletters. religiously uh, reading Index Universe at the time. They were really a, a thought leader in that space and became the expert. And uh, over time, Bloomberg has definitely come around. The whole world has. But up until, I'd say, two years ago only, you know, from 2006 to 2016, I'll tell you, it was, not a lot of people wanted to hear from you about ETFs. It was hard to get functions made. It was hard to get people to listen to you. That's the bad news. The good news is when, when there's nobody really covering it, there's a lot of vacuums you can fill. So I had was able to sort of capitalize on my skills, my social skills, which I used in public relations, which you don't need in data, <laughs> but you, you can use them. And so I basically filled gaps. I helped our salespeople uh, you know, talk about ETFs at client visits. I worked with our news. I started writing articles, did some TV hits, did, did a little radio, and just started and worked with R&D to make new functions. So I Basically took the ETF thing, you know, and tried to promote it at the same time building uh, new stuff within the company. And then ultimately in about 2017, 
I was um, asked to join the research group, which is probably where I should have been a long time before that, because what I ended up, my whole job turned into me writing and talking about ETFs, which is what they do in research. So now I'm in research. I think I'm on the right yeah. uh, the right seat on the bus. And uh, I'm a, in research, you're allowed to do all kinds of, of media and work with sales and, and even uh, advise on functions. So I'm in the right spot. Eric, this is Wes. Uh, quick question. Um, w- one thing that's super unique about what you've done is you have that capability to interact in the media, know the PR, but also have the chops and understand the actual goods. Like I've got your book sitting here, the Institutional ETF Toolbox, for God's sake. Um, one thing that Jeremy and I probably both notice is a lot of media people, they don't really understand even what they write about. So how, how did you get so educated and informed you know, coming from a different perspective, not being a finance professional. Yeah, and it's funny being at Wharton. Like I always, uh, I work with millennials who are so educated. I mean, they they get the CFA level one, two, three, Kaya. I mean, I I'm more street. I'm like street knowledge. <laughs> I mean, I just I went to Rutgers. I did pretty good. But since then, I've just got. I just go to Amazon. I download books. But I'm very social. Uh, if you're social, you talk to people. You go to conferences. You go to little events. You're just going to pick up on things. You're going to hear like a someone like you or you give a presentation and your PowerPoints, you're going to bring the good. So I'm getting the greatest hits of Jeremy's last year and I'm going to learn a lot from that. So I got free education, I feel like, just by hitting the streets and talking to people, downloading books. And one thing I did that was a great habit, I always tell new people, is if you're – whatever you cover, go to Google in a Google Alerts, put in the name of the thing you cover. So I did ETFs and exchange-traded funds. And then when my son was just born, I had to watch. I remember I had to watch the baby. I specifically remember this. I would, my wife would go get ready. I have to do baby duty while the baby was sleeping from like six to seven a.m. So in that hour, I read every single ETF article that was written, and this mm. is for like a couple years. And I got into the habit of reading clips every morning. That's really powerful. Now some of those clips can be, you know, like I said, there could be some misinformation in there. But back in the day, most people writing about ETFs were Morningstar, Index Universe, people who really were on top of their game. And I really learned a lot from that uh, that process. And then obviously making mistakes. Sometimes I'd write a story uh, or say something and someone would, would call me out and, and I would learn that way. So a lot of my education was not, uh, was more trial by error and just Reading, reading everything I can get my hands up, but more importantly, socializing. And you're on, on the social side. You are a force on Twitter, uh, so you're bringing that there. I mean, even talk about how Twitter is where you know you have a lot of these conversations. Yeah, it was just uh, <laughs> I compared. You know, for me, Twitter's a great place to promote your stuff, of course. But there's also a uh, element of it's like a rap battle. Like remember Eight Mile, where Eminem uh, had to like get his chops <laughs> rapping against guys in that club. It was rough, right? That is what Twitter is like for ideas. Uh, you're going to put something out there, especially as you get more followers in that financial Twitter community. People are going to challenge you. And so to me, it's like a sparring gym. And it's a place where I've grown tremendously because if you can if you can make a point on Twitter and, and all that and take the heat or hold up to that heat, uh, you can make it anywhere. It's really it's it's been very powerful. I also find it good for obviously reading things like people tweeting out things, I will favorite it. I have this new system now where somebody will reply to me or will tweet something. I immediately send it to a chat with my two other analysts, Tom and James, and we just bookmark it. And then we know to go back to it because it's an idea generation tool as well. Well, Let me just uh, reintroduce. We're talking to Eric Bautunas on Twitter. Eric, B-A-L-C-H-U-N-A-S. I hope I'm getting the pronunciation right. Um, Wes, 
Yeah, one thing uh, on Twitter, I agree with you. It's like being in a mosh pit where everyone's just going to attack you and eat your ears off if you don't say anything right. Um, but you also mentioned that what I actually think it's interesting. Like LinkedIn's more like a country club. W- <laughs> why is that? Like, just have, do you have any hypotheses on well, the difference? Well, yeah. So LinkedIn is people who are there. It's like a. It's almost like a job market type site, and like. It's usually a professional crowd, and everybody's real name is on there. There's nobody anonymous. And I, you know, we, I was just talking earlier about in research, we're allowed to post our stuff. It's premium content on the terminal, but we can post things here and there on Twitter or LinkedIn. When you post on LinkedIn, everyone just likes it, and you're the hero. There's just, I mean, great job, great job. And that's great. It's good promotional. But on Twitter, you get some of that, but you also get the heat. And it's because people are on there who are using anonymous names. There's a chat room element to it where people can feel unleashed. People who are just uh, alpha type people who are on Twitter because they just want to be. And those are the kind of people who are pushing back. So I like I said, Twitter is a rap battle. Uh, LinkedIn is more like a country club. And if you want to, it's like, if I want to feel good, I'll, I'll post it on LinkedIn if I'm having a bad day. Now, one of the things you do, you try to provide different perspectives and uh, maybe this segment, um, you know, Wes was, was talking about on Twitter that we would call this the ETF myth busting. You might also call it ETF fake news. There are a lot of sort of fake news out there on ETFs. Um, what, why don't we start with what you think is the sort of the biggest of the category? Where, where do you think the biggest misperceptions are for people? Right. And, you know, I've, I've been a producer of the fake news in the past. I, I remember writing an article about the merger ARB ETF. From uh, well, I, for anyway, an ETF that does merger arb. Yeah, and I was like, oh, it's a poor man's hedge fund, and somebody was like, it's only partially hedged. It's got a lot of more volatility, and uh, I felt. I mean, so I've done it. So you're looking at somebody, you know, who can spot it because I did it before. The, but the big one that that bothers me is this notion that ETFs are somehow like eating the market. They're causing a bubble. They're somehow like a weapon of mass destruction. The reason I it, first of all, it's just not true. Uh, the, there's the optics may seem like it because ETFs get a lot of the money, but they're still pretty small. I mean, they they have uh, 3.5 trillion in a stock market that's what 28 trillion, 29 trillion. So they're they're like a puppy dog with sharp teeth. They're definitely, you know, you you know, they're the hot thing. You see a lot of attention around them, but you have to look at everything in perspective. So perspective is missed a lot. Context is missed a lot. But the other thing is, I know from covering the ETF industry that they save uh, upwards of $20 billion a year for investors. They help avoid a lot of tax issues. And a lot of the issuers have to really fight in this rough environment of like, you know, Vanguard and BlackRock and fee cutting. It's a brutal environment. On the mutual fund side, I mean, it's so, it, role, it's like a gravy train. There's mm. so much money over there and yet they get no scrutiny. It's interesting that most of the scrutiny is on this side and I'm fine to have ETF scrutinized. It just doesn't seem to be balanced a lot lately, and it also sometimes lacks context. So I, I sometimes will we'll provide that context on Twitter. I remember Dave Nadig and Matt Hogan used to be the context providers, where I called them the histrionics busters. It's like Ghostbusters, but for ETF histrionics. And they'd write articles after uh, there was an article uh, that didn't have good information. I've been called out by Dave before. It didn't feel good, but I learned from it, and it probably made the world a better place. So I do that because they don't do that as much anymore. There's a couple people who do, but I ultimately am not trying to. Uh, uh, I'm not trying to be biased about the industry. I'm just trying to call out facts and also uh, make people understand that you got to look at the whole picture holistically and take into account 
other structures that people have as a choice. Because I do think sometimes, and Cliff Asnes actually talked about this uh, in terms of, um, I think it was derivatives, but he, basically the fact that if you compare something to utopia, it's always going to seem like like there's a problem. But if you compare it to things in reality, a lot of times that's more appropriate. So I think when you compare the ETF to a mutual fund doing it yourself, it it really will win that fight a lot. It's a good product. When you compare it to some kind of a utopia that doesn't exist, I think that's where sometimes the stories come out where they seem a little like um, a little over the top in terms of worrying about this ETF structure thing. Yeah, and uh, Eric, this is Wes again. Uh, there's you actually have a term for this: the "some worry" articles. Yeah, do you mind explaining that and kind of the the whispering in the ear from vested interest and different media personalities? Yeah, if you see an article that says some worry or some fear or observers think, you know, pull the thread on it or read a little bit further. And ultimately, it's probably somebody who wrote a research report or it's an active manager. And I get it. They're upset. This is their competition. There was one article in particular where an active manager from Los Angeles said ETFs are weapons of mass destruction. And I remember the headline was ETFs are weapons of mass destruction. That was that was the headline. It crushed it. It got a lot of hits. And you read further and you look, okay, it's this manager in LA. I looked up his fund. He's underperforming by 35%, his benchmark. So he, he's not a happy camper. He's probably just scapegoating the ETF uh, and he's frustrated because his trade on EM or whatever mm. didn't work out. Uh, and you know, the article really should say disgruntled underperforming active manager has a problem with ETFs. That's the story because that's what happened. But a lot of times it'll get transposed to the thing the person said, and then you have to read way down to find out, oh, it's an active manager who said it. So usually that's that's what it is. But occasionally you will find legit things that happen from bloggers, people inside the industry that I, so I, I've learned how to sort of like mm. see through the some worry ones where somebody's just whispering uh, into a reporter and trying to get them to write something versus the legit ones. Would, would, th would you categorize the ETFs are causing a market bubble in that category? Of course, because if you look at the stock market, it's gone from 10 trillion to 28 trillion in the past 10 years. That's a huge growth, right? Um, two things on that. One is that the stock market didn't go up because ETFs exist. I mean, that's kind of absurd. The stock market went up because people want to buy stocks. Okay, so the QE happened. That was very helpful to stocks. The Fed was very helpful over a number of years. Earnings got better. Trump won. Those are the reasons the stock market is up, right? So ETFs are just a format to get those stocks. That's what people are doing. That's why my, my phrase is that blaming a stock market bubble on ETFs is like blaming the MP3 for the rise of Nickelback. Yeah. <laughs> Another great one you always have is you always say that high yield is the Conway West of ETFs. Do you mind explaining what you mean by that? Yeah, junk bond ETFs, and they always call junk bond. Believe me, they never call them high yield. It's on purpose because junk gets... Okay. Listen, if you write junk bond ETFs outflows or could blow up, you'll get three, 4,000 clicks. If you write high yield ETF, yields 5%, people came in and out all day, no problem. Nobody's going to click on that. So there's also, this exists in the media everywhere, which is that if you tilt towards the negative, it usually will get more readership. Um, the junk bond is, area is more, I think, legit because you have, uh, the junk bond ETFs will have a bunch of bonds in them. And those bonds, maybe half of them don't even trade every day. And people who know the junk bond market know that it's not that liquid. So they call it a liquidity mismatch. I'm okay with that term. It is a liquidity mismatch. I think it's, okay, what are your other options? If you held the bonds yourself, do you also have a liquidity mismatch? 
right? If you go to a mutual fund, is there a liquidity mismatch there? Listen, junk bonds are just not the easiest thing on earth to deal with. So if you look in reality, the ETF doesn't look that bad. If you compare it to some sort of utopia, uh, or I don't know, every now and then I think an issuer might get a little ahead of their skis by saying that the junk bond ETF is, is more liquidity or something like that. I think those terms are probably mm. where the reporters are reacting to. And that's fair because I don't think you should go and say it's more liquid. I, I think that it's a rough place to, to wrap up, but it, it's not that e it's not necessarily easier doing it yourself or using a mutual fund. It's just another way to get that those things. And I think most people who use junk bond ETFs understand that that's what they're buying. But I always equate junk bond ETFs to owning uh, beachfront property in Florida in that it's beautiful. There's a lot of benefits, but you better expect the occasional hurricane. It, it's interesting. I mean, that I, I mean, that specific issue, I, I tend to say ETFs bring transparency where the active managers hide in the dark, where people say there's a high cost to execute or you know, they, they sort of smoke and mirrors where people think these active managers have an ability that the ETF doesn't, that really, in a lot of ways, the trading of the ETF could be the same as the active manager, but you know actually what the, the bonds are going to trade at today, whereas you don't know what the active manager is going to trade it at, and you know the cost of execution of getting in or out. This might be a better real-time price than what is actually trading in the market. It could be, and calling the junk bond ETF the real market, though, or the true market, though, I think is a little too much. I think if on a rough day when you're trying to get out of a junk bond ETF, it's going to be the real market minus what the arbitrage is. Because the the people who have but they're not trading the bonds aren't trading yeah but so what some, is it really what is it really priced at at some point let's say the bond the price of the ETF starts going down 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 and it's go, it's way below the NAV which is from last night but anyway it looks like it's at a huge discount who's going to come and put in the first buy order well it's somebody who thinks they can sell the bonds or somebody who wants to own it and thinks it's a possibly but ultimately though the arbitrage is that it's a band right and at some point that band is worth it for the arbitrager, right? And that's what makes the whole ETF system go around. Yeah. So the arbitrage ban to me is a slight cost through the whole system, but it's a not a bad cost. Usually it's a couple basis points. In the case of a junk bond ETF on a bad day, it could be 20, 30, but that's not that bad for the liquidity you get the whole time. It, I think most people would sign up for that deal anyway. The other thing is junk bond ETFs have been around for 12 years, so they did live through 2008. We have data on them. It was rough. But they traded, they made it. And then since more people have come into the market, more market makers make market in them, the arbitrage band over time has narrowed so thinly. And we've had a few episodes lately where they got tested and they did okay. Follow on that is, uh, well, first off, why the Kanye West reference for those of us who aren't uh, MTV watchers anywhere? It's just always controversial. You know, usually it's it, it, the article is really never like, uh, you know, flattering. It's usually something happened and... Uh, you know, they're just always controversy following them. And that's what I, I feel like junk bond ETFs just, you know, they're just the focal point. I mean, Carl Icahn, that's what he picked out to uh, yell uh, to talk about with Larry Fink on stage that day. He said that these are the ETFs that are going to blow up. And they just seem to gravitate con yeah. uh, controversy. It's like Ronnie Jane Dangerfield, right? Can't get yeah. no respect. Um, <laughs> So, so how about this as a follow? So, so another comment we always hear about, like how ETFs are going to destroy the world, is this one about that ETFs are making the market dumb because price discovery is no longer here because we're just going to go buy a Vanguard fund. What are your thoughts? This one might have a little more validity, only that if if people stop doing research on anything and they just buy the ETF, like this is where, you know, why buy one stock when you can have the whole basket? If more people just go buy the basket of stocks and do, don't do the research, 
ultimately, a couple things happen there. One, the market would get a little dumber because the pricing might not be as as good as it were, were if there are more people studying the fundamentals of those companies. The second thing is, you know, it, I think you need a really vibrant, active, well-researched stock market for ETFs to work at their maximum, you know, ability. So I'm a real fan of this, you know, stock. Re I work alongside stock research. I love it. It's great. ETFs allow you to sort of ride the coattails of all that, but you want that to exist. You do not want passive to devour all that. You know what's interesting? There's always two sides of every story, and the second side, and we're, we're both we're all online Twitter and blog readers. You know, the I, I always go back to this active passive in this point in particular, like the the Jesse Livermore philosophical economics post, where he would say, like, and one of his blog posts was. Well, the, the rise to passive is actually making the game harder. So instead of the ETS making the market dumber, we're actually removing mom and pop who shouldn't be trading the single stock. And we're actually removing the alpha because mom and pop is out. And now mom and pop is buying the 10 stocks. And so now the left, what's left is only active playing against active. And there's less alpha to go around because the dumb money is actually leaving the market. Let me ask you a question then. <laughs> Let's say that's true. And I, that's a great point to make. What how thin could that slice get before there's problems? Like, this is a question I get a lot yeah. is, how much could passive own the market before there's a problem? So right now, I know, and this brings up another sort of mis, uh, misinformation out there, is that passive accounts for 35% of fund assets, but fund assets are only half the stock market ownership. So in, in, to say that another way, passive owns about 17% of stocks. Now. Obviously, some of the institutional money could be passive. So let's move yeah. that 17 up to 30. Let's say 30% is passively owned. Now you got 70% that isn't. What's that 30, 70 number in the future, knowing that the, the slice that's active is smart people? How high could it get? 90? I mean, that's the extreme. I mean, that is an interesting... It's, it's the philosophical debate that we won't know until, we, until it's there. But. Well, and, and I think in uh, in competitive markets, these problems solve themselves because eventually, if, if price discovery got too loose, for example, everything got too cheap because everyone's like, ah, out of here. Well, guess what? There's a private capital market. They could go buy the securities, take them off the market, you know, and, and just reap the cash flows off the things. We, um, we're gonna we're and, gonna just take a quick break. We have another. We have Eric with us for the full hour. We're gonna be able to continue the next conversation with the next next segment of the the, uh, the show. But you're listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside co-host today, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, we have Eric Bochunas, Senior ETF Analyst from Bloomberg Intelligence, author of the Institutional ETF Toolbox. And we were, just before the break, we were talking about sort of this active-passive, how much of the market can get passive. And this is one of those sort of age-old debates, Eric, that, you know, what is the rise of passive? Is active dead? And, you know, there's a lot of heated emotions on both sides. I was uh, at a conference down in, in in the Carolinas last year, and I was sort of the lone ETF guy. I was really an active trader conference. Um, one of our friends, the, the Daily Dirt Nap, Jared Dillon, who's been a regular guest on our show, you know, it was at his conference, and he was the true active, and I was de defending passive. And I was saying, hey, the costs are coming down. Fund management fees are coming down. There's less fees to go around to the active manager. But it was like, you know, in that community, you know, you're the you're the death of capitalism. There's sort of this growing sense that ETFs are really creating real problems. Any commentary on that mentality as you see it? Yeah, I get it. It's a threat. Um, this is a disintermediating force, the ETF. Um, 
There's a lot of people in, in the middle who have jobs here, and that's where I get sensitive. It's, it's just that I'm only calling it like I see it. And this is where I think a lot of people in the finan- financial industry are probably conflicted because they probably love all this for their personal account, but it's rough for their career. And that is an internal conflict that happens inside companies and inside people. Hmm. And it's going to continue to play out. And it's part of what is interesting to me covering this trend. It's happening at a glacial pace, but it is really reshaping the whole enchilada. And I think you probably have a smaller industry at the end of 20 years in terms of revenue. You have to, because if all the money's going to stuff that charges less than 20 basis points. At some point, something's going to have to um, tr- get trimmed a little bit. The other part of that story that's interesting, though, and it brings up this whole uh, passive owning too much is, you know, I think you brought up Fidelity. In one of, in one of my uh, research pieces, we looked at active mutual funds and what they held. And, you know, there's this phrase closet indexing, active mutual funds that hold a lot of the same stocks as their benchmark. And if Fidelity Magellan, if you look at the top 10 holdings of it, I mean, it's like JP Morgan, Apple. I mean, it literally looks like the S&P 500 top 10. And this is a bigger, more interesting issue, which is that Let's say ETFs didn't exist, right? What would you hold? Okay, you'd hold Fidelity Magellan, let's say, right? What's that going to hold? It's going to hold the same stuff in the S&P 500, maybe in a slightly different order. But then you add up all the active mutual funds across the space, and you're ultimately probably 90% the same as if there were just indexes holding them. So essentially, a lot of this is a shift from closet indexing to actual indexing for a fifth of the cost. It's a, it's a real no-brainer, but I've stopped... I used to just sort of like put all that on active managers. I, I feel bad a little bit for them because a lot of them are doing it because, you know, and Wes will have a, a great comment on this. A lot of them do it because that's what advisors want. They don't really want someone to be that active. And so, and, and obviously those funds pay advisors. So the whole, there's a whole system set up for these managers to be closer to the benchmark than say a true active fund. But you can see the sort of percolations of that changing. And advisors are like, okay, we're going to go passive, and then people asking for more active. So there's a value add and not just something close to the index. One of the things, you have a great term, it's called the smart beta spectrum, uh, which I think encapsulates a lot of these ideas. Do you mind uh, sharing that with the uh, listeners and explain how that works? Sure. So smart beta is sort of filling that gap between a a pure discretionary Peter Lynch type manager and pure passive, which would be like the S&P 500, let's say, right? In between those two poles is, is basically a lot of funds that will, and you know, Jeremy's firm, Wisdom Tree, does this. They practically uh, pioneered, pioneered it. They did. You'll take, uh, let's take the S&P. We'll weight it by dividends. Okay, we'll weight it by volatility. We'll weight it by fundamentals, maybe five different metrics. We'll have our own little system. So essentially, what Smart Beta is doing is taking active management secret sauce and alpha techniques and then designing indexes with that in mind. So in a way, smart beta is, is a new form of active. And there's a lot of different types of way to do it. And there's a spectrum. And there's uh, six, 700 ETFs that are, quote, smart beta. But like one might be, um, you know, let, let's use the example of value. And I'm gonna, um, I can't bring up tickers here, but I will say that there's one from a, a firm that's based not too far from here. <laughs> Can I say the firm? Philadelphia, name? Vanguard. Yeah. Okay. So Vanguard may have a value ETF that takes uh, this 250 value side of the S&P and then market cap weights them. So when you do that, you're not really, your PE might be 24, if the market's 25, you're just like barely cheaper. Then there could be a value ETF, like, uh, I don't know, a guy who's based in Broomall, Pennsylvania, 
might have a really hardcore value ETF that you might have a PE of 13 or 14 because they're doing it and they're using less stocks. They're looking for more deeper value. And there's a spectrum. There's some in between. And so what we're doing at Bloomberg, is we're making a score to tell you where this fund is on the spectrum to know how wild the ride is because mm. not everybody wants a wild ride, but some people do. And this, this score, I think, would be equivalent to the alcohol content on the side of a beer, right? So one might be, the one I first described from Vanguard might be like an O'Doul's. There's like a tiny a tiny little drop of alcohol in it, but you need to drink a case. Then on the other side, you might have like moonshine, which is just pure, unvarnished value. And so I think in the, and in the middle is all the sort of, you know, popular flavors, power shares, wisdom tree. But tapping in on that is going to help smart beta because that's a big challenge right now. People, it's a lot of stuff that's just packaged into smart beta and people don't know what to make of it. I don't know if Eric's been to the Broomall, Pennsylvania headquarters of this other strategy, but Wes, what, there's this, um, instead of the O'Doul's and I don't know if I, I, the moonshine here, what is your snake um, alcohol? Oh, ha- Habusake. He's got some Habusake and he's really on that end of the spectrum <laughs> as people who know him well will know. Yeah, and just to explain, uh, habusake, since probably most people don't know what that is, I used to live in Okinawa, and they just put, like, these very poisonous snakes in sake, and it just sits there. You know, it's one of these crazy <laughs> alcoholic mixtures that'll... And he made us all drink it relatively yeah. recently at a, an event there. That's like buying J.C. Penny. That's just like buying one stock that's deep value. I mean, there's no... not There's no... Not even diversification in that. No, no, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that actually goes to another point. Another term you have is the ETF addiction or the ETF abuse, where you might talk into that and where, where sometimes people take this overboard. Yeah, so it's kind of like um, ETFs are very efficient. They're very easy to trade. They're, you can trade them all day. Uh, they're cheap. They're tax I mean, they got so much going for them. That's what we discussed earlier. They're so good that you could use them too much. <laughs> and there's a study in Germany that found that um, they called it abusing ETFs, and they found that in a portion of the portfolio where people had ETFs versus mutual funds, that portion did worse, a little bit, not a lot. And they found it's because people were trading too much. Hmm. And this comes to behavior, which is a almost a bigger issue than active-passive, which is that if you can't behave yourself, then you're probably going to lose money. It's very difficult to market time, and if, especially if you trade a lot, there's cost to that. Just like going to a casino, u- ultimately the house will probably win. So. That's why I also have this other metaphor of the ETF being like gremlins. Remember that movie where the guy brought home the mogwai and he has three rules? And if you could just, you know, handle these three rules, you can have this lovely little mogwai. And if you can't, the thing's going to turn into a monster and like, you know, wreck the city. One of those rules for me is don't trade too much. So you got this great gift here, this powerful product. Don't trade yourself too much into the poorhouse. This also is, was uh, John Bogle's concern from Vanguard. Yeah. And I think he's on to something. I think he's extreme, maybe, and and uh, also he has his stat. He uses turnover, and if you just look at turnover in ETF, it can cloud the buy and holders. But long story short, I think about half the people are probably buying and holding, and the other half are trading. The question is, are there any people who are like more real, like buy, should be buying and holding, who are trading? You'd hate to see that, and that's what the study sort of pointed out, and that's a legit concern, in my opinion. That's, a, that's some worry article that the trading in these ETFs that uh, the question is, will the, the fact that you can trade it actually force people to trade more? And I guess there's some. Not force them, but tempt them. Because they can. Because you can. Like, you know, you can trade Russia small caps at 10 in the morning and then you can short China A shares. I mean, you could go down a, a spiral pretty quickly and yeah. then throw in leverage ETFs. 
you know, <laughs> XIV. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then you also Sorry. throw in like the news. You have apps like Robinhood where you can click a button and you own or, or yeah. don't own a company. Um, well, it's interesting. If you look at millennials' portfolios, they're typically like heavy, dirt cheap cores. But on the outside, the stuff they trade is some is some wild stuff. And I think there is a gambling aspect to uh, that part of the market. Um, you also have a term for ETFs for vampiring. Um, and my, my daughters love the Vampirina show. So explain the, uh, the vampire effect as it comes to ETFs. Yeah, there's an ad from a certain uh, issuer that says, why buy one stock when you can have the whole basket? That's a great point. And that's how ETFs were first sold. And it's a good one. Like, it, I don't know anything about gold miners. So I would obviously maybe just buy the gold miner ETF and make it easy. Or Brazil, right? Yeah. I don't have time to do all the studying. I get that. But at the on the flip side of that, if more and more people do that, if they just don't go and actually do stock trading, if the ETF starts to suck liquidity away from the, st- the stocks or bonds it holds, because it's, you know, again, that's the vampire. It vampires mm. away too much liquidity. The problem with that is, it's going to incrementally raise the bid-ass spreads of those stocks. It's that's that's ultimately going to make it more expensive to arbitrage, and that's more cost for the ETF holder. It's not a lot. It's gradual, but it's fr- it's more friction in the market than you want. And the flip side, if there is a scary, crazy sell-off day, you probably have a slightly more increased risk of a syst- systemic issue if everyone's just holding the ETF. So I am a big fan of not selling like that. I'd rather ETF sell against mutual funds and derivatives. And there's a lot of money to clean up on, mm. on there, and you can. It's easy pickings over there. I don't know if if positioning the ETF against stocks or bonds is the right move. Uh, for I mean, you could do it for a while, but at some point, it, it could become dangerous. I mean, it's, it's interesting because the more narrow the basket, like as you're talking about, as like a gold miners as an example, seems like a classic one where you know I don't. I just want exposure to that theme. I don't know. I don't have the time to go into research individual stocks, but I want that theme. So in a way, that's the definition what these baskets were created for. But it also like when you get the super popular ETF that narrows in and vampires that that segment of the market. I, I think that gold miners was a category that you did see some issues in liquidity and stock changes, and they changed the indexes, and yeah, that created some havoc in that market. Yeah, now there's um, uh, real estate is the next area. REIT ETFs own 25 percent of real estate. That's because the REITs yield a lot, and so sometimes as a whole, ETFs don't own that much. But there are these pockets where you have something that has a real desirable attribute like yield, but they're mid-cap-ish, like gold miners or, or REITs, and you can have a higher ownership. And those are the areas we watch as canaries in the coal mine to see what's going on that might foreshadow what could happen if ETFs grew to, say, like $10 trillion. Now, w- one thing, uh, Eric, just because you're around this field all the time, every day, and you post about every new ETF that's coming out there, one of the big fears is there's just too many ETFs. Can you speak to this? I get this a lot. Uh, I love tweeting new filings, especially when the market's doing really well. The filings get crazier and crazier. I think like two weeks before the market downturn, there was a space ETF filed uh, that will invest in like astronaut. You know, it, it could do well. I don't know. But that's just the type of stuff I love tweeting out. Mostly, asteroid mining ETF. Yeah, asteroid ju- juniors. Uh, <laughs> so, when I tweet that out, you always get the same reaction from the peanut gallery. Oh, this will end well, or that's the top. Um, in that case, they were right with the space one. But um, I think also people think there's too many ETF launches. Like last year, there was 250. There's one ETF launching a day in the US and three in the world every day, right? That seems crazy, but you got to take a step back. There's 2,000 ETFs. There's 7,500 mutual funds. 
And last year, there were more mutual funds launched than ETFs. Again, not having that mutual fund background is something that it tends to happen when people just look at the ETFs in isolation. You got to look at them in uh, perspective. The other one that made the rounds recently, and I actually helped promote this, was this chart showing the number of indexes has eclipsed the number of stocks. So there's now like, I don't know, 6,000 indexes, 4,500 stocks, something like that. Hmm. Here's the problem. A, there are more indexes than that, I hate to tell you. They just, this is from Bernstein Report. Uh, but the thing is, there's already more mutual funds than stocks. No one seems to care. It's it just, you know, it's there's optics and there's reality. And I try to point out the reality if the optics are what people seem to be chasing that day. We're talking yeah. to Eric Botrunas of ETF, the senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg. Um, Eric, and that the stat on the new mutual fund versus ETFs. Did the do you have a sense who for the first year of those filings did the mutual funds or the ETFs bring in more? Was it? Oh, from the new ones. Yeah. Uh, you know, honestly, I bet the mutual funds did because a lot of them I think were certain classes they were switching. Mutual fund assets though are a little, a lot of it's money moving in between yeah. the, oh, the mutual funds themselves. But <clears throat> one more thing on the new launches that I, well, new launches don't do well. It usually takes an ETF like three or four years. Yeah. It ha it's like a, a little seed you put in the ground. It's got to develop roots that are liquidity roots. People, a lot of people won't trade ETF till it starts trading. It's like a chicken or egg. Uh, so I've done this study where 90% of the revenue in ETFs goes to products that are five years older or more. So I always tell new issuers, the best advice is to hang in there for a long time because, and we've seen ETFs swim up into the middle class from oblivion. There's now 900 ETFs that are between 100 million and a billion dollars. That's a pretty good middle class. Yeah. There's only a handful that are in that like upper echelon, but that that middle class are mostly filled with ones that are older and hung in there and just, you know, the thing Grind with ETFs, out. yeah, you and you have to, like I said, ETFs are bought, not sold. There's no kickbacks in them. There's distribution can be helpful if you're a big company, but there's not like, it's not like somebody being paid off to put you in it like merit. the way- It's definitely merit. It's merit-based and that just takes longer for the tree to grow. Now you have a, a term in this category too, BYOA. <laughs> Explain BYOA. So a lot of people will refer to the ETF launches and, and the, in the business as a party, like the ETF party. That's the, I, I didn't invent that phrase, but I get this image of like all these people hanging out at a house party, which I've been to many in college, uh, probably too many, that's why I didn't go to Warden. But anyway. <laughs> we had our own house parties here. <laughs> They were a little I bit lamer than Rutgers, I'm sure. Yeah, I stayed too late, Jeremy. That's the problem. I didn't go home at like two. Anyway, let's say it's two in the morning here at the house party, and it's the ETF party. The thing is, most of the assets are going to legacy issuers that have that liquidity. All the natural flows go to handful of issuers. That you know, 80, 90% of the flows probably go to the top 10 issuers. So there's very little left for everybody else. So when a big company comes over, like a um, Fidelity, um, even a Goldman, even a uh, like a bunch of insurance companies came over last year, USAA, Transamerica, Nationwide. These are monster asset managers entering this ETF space. As I said, going from the mutual fund business to the ETF world is like going from a country club to a jungle. You are not going to, it doesn't matter who you are. Even Goldman Sachs can't just throw an ETF out there and everybody's like, oh, it's Goldman, I'm going to buy it. It doesn't work that way. I think it's a rude awakening for some of them, but you will find them get some assets because they tend to, uh, have their salespeople now have something to offer a client who is going to go to BlackRock or Vanguard. And they're like, oh, no, we have an ETF now. So they're doing it, and they're cannibalizing a little bit from themselves. So it appears they're being successful. Those are assets from their own other accounts, and that's what I refer to as BYOA. So I say the ETF party is still going on, but it's now BYOA. Bring your own assets. 
So come with a keg full of assets and you're more than welcome. But one point on this, just to not be too dour, if you hang in there and some of your own assets in there and there's some trading, organic flows can happen. Goldman Sachs, at going back there, one of their ETFs took off. They have a hit on their hands with GS, GSLC. I think it's like two, oh, sorry, I, um, that, forget I said that. Um, the, one of their ETFs is a hit with about over uh, $2.3 billion. So you can actually get some organic growth going, but I think at first you got to have to like bring your own. Yeah, I mean, this BYOA, the asset, it's useful to have a, a large parent organization. For the startups without a parent organization, you could see, I mean, it's not easy to bring your own assets unless you know you have clients who come in and say, I really want to give you this uh, starting point. That's why I love and give a lot of attention and coverage to these, I call them indie shops that come in and make a splash like yeah. Robo yeah. Um, or uh, Hack. I mean, that's against the odds. They got nothing going for them. It's just the, the product just hit. It's like a, a, like a one-hit wonder in the 80s, you know, like Men Without Hats, you know, or something like that where the song just, it's just the hit, had, had no fan base. Those are really interesting and exciting because the, I will give more attention to, say, Robo getting $500 million than I would to the next Vanguard ETF getting $3 billion, right? Because... One's like the Blair Witch Project. One's like Iron Man 4, right? The one's way harder to do. And I think that part of the business is really exciting. Well, one thing that I find uh, fascinating, maybe you have better insights than I do, but you know, Vanguard just launched this trio of their factory TFs, and they actually don't have that much in the way of assets. Do you have any theories about why that might be? It's interesting. I, I would give it time. I usually, they look, they usually get their assets. I have a feeling, though, that, um, these are complicated factor uh, ETFs. Uh, not, I just looked at the value one. It doesn't have any stock over 1% weighting. It's very unvanguardish. It's a new kind of vanguard. It might just take a while for their typical client base to figure out how to use them. There's some confusion on how to use a factor ETF in a portfolio, how much to use, how much, where on the spectrum you should buy it. Uh, these ones are more towards the moonshine section of the spectrum. And uh, I, we'll, we'll see. I mean, honestly, in this case, normally Vanguard, the flows happen just because they're cheap. But in this case, I think you probably have to have a little outperformance, a little run. You know, we saw that with Lowval. Nobody really cared about Lowval. But when it started outperforming for, I think, two or three years ago, it got $20 billion. People will follow that shiny object. Performance chasing is alive and well in the ETF space. Normally, Vanguard doesn't play that game. But in this case, they may, that may, need, they may need to have the performance first. Yeah, well, and I just highlight it because it's super interesting where, you, where in some sense, if you're Vanguard or iShares, you launch a fund and it's, boom, billion dollars. But if you don't launch a fund that's in your niche where you understand what's going on and how to market to that clientele, even Vanguard is, is kind of struggling. It's just a really, like you said, it's a jungle. It is, this ain't the country club. It, yeah, exactly. And Vanguard is kind of what made it a jungle. Their mutual ownership structure is, you know... it. It is just, you know, that the lower the, the these low fees are making it difficult for people. But on the Vanguard um, factor front, one little thing on that is you have to admit Vanguard's gone a long way. When you have a Vanguard Momentum ETF, I mean, that, that I, everybody wants to know Bogle's reaction to that because he's not a fan of ETFs, doesn't really care for factors or active. Um, and that has like all of them in one shot. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we interviewed the guy on ETF IQ uh, who runs that quant group. And he giggled, you know, he's like, you know, um, he, I understand that, that view, but they, their case is that 
well, we're trying to do this on lower fees. So it is a Vanguard way of doing it or whatever. That was the, the case. So we got the final three-minute countdown here, a little bit less. Where do you see your Bloomberg and sort of your, what you oversee there? Like, where do you see that going? Like, what do you think the future for ETFs at Bloomberg is? How you, what sort of your value add? Where do you think you try to keep expanding what, what Bloomberg's providing? Well, having the, uh, a TV show and a podcast, this is the first time it's gone through the mainstream. There's like now five or six really good reporters covering ETFs. I, I feel like we're, we're there. Uh, now, there, I've heard some people argue there should be a Bloomberg yellow key. I mean, a, geez, an ETF yellow key on the terminal. That would be kind of cool to have a, a home on the terminal for all things ETF. Right now, BI ETF is where I write all my research. There's ETF Go for searching. I mean, we're looking pretty good. Um, you're doing a lot of flows work. You're doing a lot of portfolio analytics with inside the ETFs. I think it's just more just trying to get some more resources, build out more products. Uh, but I do see this area growing, uh, passive, and, and how to use And look, a lot of people are using ETFs actively. And I, so I, they fit right into the whole Bloomberg terminal. You know, they are something that people are trading. Uh, so hopefully, we'll, I mean, just more of the same, to be honest with you. It, it, one last question here. What, in general, as you look out 10 years from now, what, what excites you most about ETFs? <laughs> um, besides Bitcoin? No, um, cryptos. Uh, uh, you know, that is a good point. Um, ETFs have democratized everything, so it is exciting to see them go and democratize these new areas. Sell-side research is starting to be ETFized. Bitcoin could be. I like seeing that. It's also interesting just to see how it changes the shape of the financial industry. I like that long-term story as well. Um, but, you know, I've always been excited to buy the ETF because it basically uh, it, it levels the whole entire playing field. You know, my mom is in, uh, I can't say the ticker, but my mom is in an ETF that is held by Bridgewater, the world's largest hedge fund, and they both pay the same fee. So that always, that, that kind of uh, full, uh, sort of bigger philosophical story is something that's going to continue to play out. So, Well, Eric, thank you so much for coming down to our Philadelphia studio here at Wharton. This is our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.